quick. Jack jumped over the candlestick. My mom taught me that, but she wouldn't let me do it. I don't understand. Then you realize that ring around the rosies, pocket full of posies isn't nearly as fun as the kids make it. It's really about the black plague and, you know, it's just awful when you begin to look at it. Most of us, I guess, have heard the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty. I have always loved to write. I need to do more of it as life progresses. I have slowed down immensely in my my writing, but in junior high and high school, I uh, wrote copious amounts and I one day decided that the Humpty Dumpty version that I had been taught didn't quite cut it. So I wrote my own version instead, and it goes like this. I told my son not to play upon that great big wall, but as you know, that he did, and he began to fall. He fell a foot and then a mile, and as I looked, I saw him smile as if this was just all a dream, and he'd wake up and kind of scream, but when he hit, he really splattered. Oh, he looked so very battered. I called the horses and the men, but somehow it really didn't matter. The best we could do was have him for lunch or possibly brunch. (laughs) That's just a small insight into the mind of your pastor. And we're very thankful that our pastoral elder, Brother Buford, has a degree in psychology and, and, and counseling, and so he helps me a little bit. A small bit. Why does Humpty Dumpty have anything to do with tonight's service? Well, one of the questions I'd like to ask is what was the egg doing on top of the wall in the first place? Why was a fragile egg dancing around a dangerous precipice? Why did an overgrown, breakable egg want to put himself into a situation that was very possibly, literally, life or death? And now suddenly Humpty Dumpty is no longer some little kid's rhyme but something that you have to think about and it's, it, you, you begin to think about life. And I wonder if anyone ever told Humpty and Dumpty no. I wonder if there was those that tried to persuade him not to climb up there. Did he just one day wake up and head up to the top of the wall or did he slowly work himself up to the level and the place of that fall? The young people and some of us adults, we took a float trip this year and we, we, we get there and we got to one of those cliffs and uh, there was different levels and um, it was high up there. Moms, y'all can close your ears for a moment, but some of our young people, you know, they, they got up about five foot and it seemed like it was a hundred foot and finally they jumped, but it's amazing how once you survive that, you go up. And I guess the thing is, we're going to keep climbing until we don't survive. That's kind of the mindset of some of our young people is, hey, I survived that. And luckily we ran out of cliff before they died because I'm convinced they would not have stopped until someone got hurt. I wonder if that's how Humpty Dumpty was. I can perhaps use my imagination to see a mother that knows the ungangly, uncoordinated egg that he is, possibly tried to shelter him from falls, knowing that the fragileness of that egg would result if he fell. It could be fatal, but like all eggs his age, he... He, he became bored and tried things that, that kind of, you know, gave him that thrill. Perhaps he, one day he jumped off the curb. Now, there's some that need to be very careful when it comes to curbs. Curbs can be dangerous, and I won't mention any names, but there are some curbs that have hurt some of our people here. But, you know, most curbs are not that big. And I, I wonder when he, that, that egg, jumped off the curb and 
he felt those insides slosh kind of alarmingly. If he thought, am I going to be okay? And when that was okay, he jumped off his bed and, and, and then he climbed up the steps of the porch and jumped and he could hear the sounds of his egg white sloshing around inside of him. And again, he higher and higher, he climbed oblivious to the fact that he was far beyond the breaking point of an egg. Maybe it was that he said and crowed as he jumped, look at me. And that sickening sound of an egg shattering was the last thing he ever heard. Maybe he was still conscious while the horses and the men worked on him. By the way, no matter what it is, I've never figured that one out. How does a horse with hooves try to put an egg back together? I don't know. I didn't write that part. But it was because of his lapse in judgment that he fell to his death, thus securing himself a place in the annals of nursery rhymes. And some of you, looking at me today, thinking I have lost my ever-loving mind, you have that quiet half-grin as you pity me. You say that it's because of Zeke and other children that I'm going to the funny farm and but, but there's other falls that perhaps not recorded in Mother Goose's Grimm or, or in Aesop's fables that in our lives there have been plenty of people that have fallen and regretted the fall. One of those is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and honestly today I don't want to spend a lot of time. I've preached about the rooftop of uninvolvement and I've preached about David's fall. 2 Samuel chapter 11 says it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That first verse becomes so poignant in the indictment of David. It's the hinge on which so much of that portion of David's life swings. It came time to pass when kings should be at battle that David tarried still at Jerusalem. Perhaps it would be better to read Buford's version of the Bible. David sent Joab and the Israelite army to destroy the Ammonites. And in process they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. But David stayed home. So much is read in that verse. And this is a little bit from, from, from my sermon, The Rooftop of Uninvolvement, that I've preached before but how much can you read everyone is praying David stayed home everybody's at church but David stayed home everybody was at youth service but David stayed home they or everyone was doing the work for God but David stayed home there is a problem when you are not doing what you ought to be doing and as I've been told and heard an idle mind is the devil's playground. That's not biblical, but there's a lot of biblical principles that back up that exactly thing. When you get to the fourth verse of what I just read, you find that David has gone from mighty king to lustful sinner. He went from the top of his palace to the depths of sin, all because he was uninvolved. It's a dangerous place to be. He should have been doing the work of a king. But he was bored, he was at home, he was just kind of letting things go and he had nothing else to do. He takes a walk on his roof, the devil uses that opportunity for, to strike him with temptation and David falls a mighty fall just like Humpty Dumpty. David stayed home 
David walked, David looked, David lusted, David invited, David sleeps, David lies, David kills. What a fall. But that is not the only place in the Bible that we see that fall. That's not the only time. And I'm very thankful. Uh, one of the beauty, one of the most beautiful things about David's life is that David was not remembered for his sin. He will forever be remembered for his repentance. The reason we say he's a man after God's own heart is because when he fell and when he messed up and when he, 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 he was laid low, instead of getting mad at God, he realized it's my fault and he found a place of repentance. And because of that, I believe David understood the battle that rages in the minds of people. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 2. I've set the stage for David's life and David's fall. And I'm thankful that David came out ahead. But there's another fall in the Bible that doesn't have the happy ending that David does. In verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 2, David, and I'm reading the English Standard Version, it was David's time to die and it drew near. He commanded Solomon his son saying, I want, you, I want you to listen to what I say and listen to the words that, Sol, that, that Solomon received from his father. And I want you to hear the, the push, the impetus behind those words knowing that it was a man, David, that had fallen and had understood how low not paying attention to God can bring you. David said to his son, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments and his rules and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, If your sons pay close attention to, the, to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness and with all thy heart and with all thy soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David looked at his son. And, and, and by the way, dads and parents, I, I wrote in my Bible, I've underlined that whole passage, and I wrote, that's a great charge that I need to give my own children. To remind them, if you walk with God, if you follow his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, then God will walk before you in faithfulness. And David died. And Solomon, his son, took the throne. Solomon is known as the wisest man, but in reality he's known as the dumbest, wisest man. It starts, and, and I'm, I'm on... I can't give you a whole character study of Solomon. I'm going to have to, uh, for, for time's sake, I'm going to have to leave some elements of his life and a story out. But in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you, you start seeing a crack in the armor of Solomon. 
For it says in chapter 3 of 1 Kings that Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. And that in and of itself should have kind of been a, a check to Solomon all throughout Israel's history. They've been warmed over and over and over and over again. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't, don't take husbands and wives that, that are not in this and don't believe what you do. And, and it just usually never works out. So it is that Solomon did it. And, and, and if this was the only thing that Solomon had, we could chalk it up and say Solomon won that. But you begin to see that in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. He walked in the statutes of David his father. But he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And see, even though they didn't have a temple, they still had a tabernacle. But Israel was in that, that downward spiral where, where they began to offer sacrifices in what was called high places. And it wasn't quite idolatry, but it wasn't right worship either. God said, I've got a place where I want you to come. I want you to come to the tabernacle. But, but, they, but, but Solomon would, would find those high places and, and, and he, he went... Uh, he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. And the Bible says he used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And it, was, it, it seemed good. His worship seemed good. But I hear the echoes of, of, of old Samuel pointing his finger at, at King Saul. Saying, King Saul, obedience is far better than sacrifice. And, and Saul was there and the, the beauty of God's grace and the beauty of God's mercy is this. That even though Solomon may not have been doing everything exactly right, he had at least a desire in his heart to have a connection with God. And God honored his connection even though there was some, some unsteady footing that Solomon was engaged in. And even though he wasn't doing everything right and even though he wasn't completely following it, God said, I'll give you a chance. And so God began to speak, the Bible says in verse 5, in Gibeon, at Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, ask what I shall give you. And That famous prayer and petition of Solomon says, I, 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 what I need more than anything is divine wisdom. And I can see God smiling. He says, you know, it was kind of a test. You didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for wealth. You didn't ask for fame and fortune. You asked for divine wisdom, and because you asked the right thing, all of those other things will follow. And this is the start of, of Solomon's upward trajectory. You find very quickly that Solomon's wisdom comes. You know the story. There were two women that came to ask of the king. They, they, the Bible indicates they were prostitutes or, or, or harlots, but you know they, they had babies out of wedlock and they're living in, in the same house. And you know one, one lady says in the middle of the night, the, um, this other lady, her baby died, and she she switched our babies and she put the dead baby in my bed and she took my live baby. And Solomon, what should I do? Again, the wisdom of God begins to go. Solomon, he was walking right. And Solomon, God gives Solomon the, 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 the wisdom and he says, hey, give me a sword. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half and we'll give half to you and half to the other. And one of the women said, no, don't do that. Just, just, just give it to the other lady. I don't want to see it die. And Solomon said, that's the true mother that would be willing to give up her, daughter, her son 
just so that it didn't die rather than be the selfish one that says it wasn't mine to begin with. Who cares? And you see the hand of God in Solomon's life. Solomon's uh, reputation begins to precede him. He's wealthy. He's wise. Uh, it, it, depending on what Bible you have, it's, it's kind of cool in verse chapter 4 verse 22 you find what Solomon's provision was for one day this is what it took to run and to, and to provision Solomon's palace and all of his, his it, it took 30 cores of fine flour a core was about 6 bushels and so if you take 6 times 30 that's 180 bushels of flour a day that it took to feed Solomon's palace it took 60 cores of meal. I think that's 300 or, or 360 uh, bushels that it took of meal to do it. It took 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides the deer and gazelles and roebucks and fat and fowl. And you think about that. He had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and they provide provision for King Solomon and there was nothing lacking. Think about that. He was wise. He was rich. He had everything going for him. It seemed like he ought to at least follow in his, fa in his father's footsteps and be a man after God's own heart. He began to build the temple. David had had the desire to bring the ark into a permanent place. God had even allowed David to gather all of the materials. But because of some of David's shortcomings, God said, I'm not going to let you build it. I'll let you get it all ready, but your son will build me a house. And so he began to build the temple. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 6 that it was in the 480 year, 80th year after they left Egypt that Solomon began to build the temple. 480 years after they exited Egypt and though after those 10 plagues and he began to build it. I don't have time to go in and I preached about it here and there but the, the temple of Solomon was the most incredible, intricate, beautiful structure that quite possibly has ever been built in the history of all of mankind. He built it. He, he, he worked on it. For seven years, Solomon did it. In fact, the way he built it is astounding. You, you can read it. I, I don't have time, but you can see how big the, 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 the granite and marble blocks were that they used to build the temple. It said that everything, all of those blocks fitted so perfectly together that you didn't even have to have mortar in between them. The, the, the engineering marvel of this temple was mind-boggling. In fact, all of these, it tells you how big they are. You can probably do a little or mathematics and figure out how much those blocks weighed, but the Bible tells us that the workmen, they had to work on the blocks, and they worked so far away that when they were building the temple, you never heard the sound of hammers. That meant they had to build these, you know, you know they, they had to, 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 to carve these blocks out a long way away in the quarry and then bring them in and they had to just fit. It was incredible. For seven years, Solomon built the temple. And then it, it seems almost like an afterthought because the end of chapter 6 of 1 King tells us he took seven years. But almost as if just an off-the-cuff comment, as you've heard me preach so many times, there's not an idle word in the Bible. 
chapter 7 starts. And Solomon was building his own house 13 years. He built the house of the Lord. You have an incredible dedicatory prayer that Solomon prayed. You have an, an unbelievable sight when they began to sacrifice. And, and the sacrifices before the temple uh, was opened was so great that the altar that was there could not contain it. And so Solomon hallowed the ground around it. He had to make a bigger altar to handle his sacrifice. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was a feast. People ate. And God honored that. And the Bible says that when God began to move into that temple that the doors shook and God so filled up that temple that Solomon built that no one could even enter it was an incredible sight I, I encourage you read Solomon's prayer Solomon prays it's man's prayer it's not God's words it's man's prayer he says Lord if we do this and if this happens and if this comes to pass and if the crops are failing then Lord would you intervene and the beauty of it is God answers him and brother Harpo almost word for word God says yes I will do what you pray Solomon was amazing it was incredible all the things that he did then you he appears under Solomon you see other acts that Solomon did the queen of Sheba comes the queen of Sheba looks around and, and she was most likely one of the wealthiest of all uh, uh, queens and kings of that time but she walks into the presence of Solomon and she says God's hand is on you I've never seen anything like this I've never seen wisdom I've never seen wealth I've never seen the favor of God it is amazing and then chapter 11 hits 1 Kings chapter 11 there's no warning there's no leading up to it it's in your face. It just shows up. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from all the nations concerning which the Lord hath said to the children of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses. He had 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Solomon went after Ashereth the goddess of the Sidonians and after Malachim the abomination of the Ammonites and Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh the abomination of Moab and for Molech the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem and so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their God from, from the king with wisdom and wealth and majesty and power to the start of Israel's decline now, you've all heard it said, and I believe it wholeheartedly. I mean, you see it in the Bible. 
all the way back from Moses' time and, and maybe even Abraham's time in a sense, God had said, uh, don't, don't hang, don't, don't, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. Uh, uh, you might be in the world, but you're not of the world. You might be passing through that wilderness, but that's not to be where your home is. And so if you're going to get married, I, I may be preaching to some young people and some others, if you're going to get married, make sure you're looking in the church, not out of the church. Because the, the Bible here, here's the reason the Bible says if you go after those that, that, that don't have this understanding that you've been blessed with, they'll turn your heart after their gods. Just in case any of you young men or even some of you young ladies look at me and say, but I'm I, I can handle it. You ain't smarter than Solomon, you ain't wiser than Solomon, and Solomon failed. Ain't a chance we're gonna make it. 700 wives, 700 mother-in-laws, not real wise, I'm blessed, I have the best mother-in-law in the whole world and I don't need another one, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. But here, here's what I want to get at. Solomon, we, we could, Brother Shane, we could chalk up Solomon's life and we could say, Solomon, you failed when you started hanging around those people God said don't hang around. We, we could say, Solomon, your failure was when you got connected to all those Ammonites and Hittites and Sidonians and, and Ammonites and all that. But I want to tell you today that in reality, that's not where Solomon failed. And I have been, I've been studying the, the, the history of Israel for, for a couple months now. And, and, and I, had, I had asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I've watched Solomon's fall. And God, I, wanna, I feel like there's a message to be preached about Solomon's fall. But my question, God, is I feel like I'm missing something. It's too easy to say it was because of those 700 women. Because if we're not careful, we would say, well, guess what, I don't have 700 wives, so I'm going to be okay. In fact, I don't know anybody. I don't even know anybody in history other than Solomon that had that many wives and concubines. I'm sure there was somebody in Persia that did it. But, you know, and, and so if we chalk it up to having 700 wives, then we kind of put Solomon up on a pedestal, a bad pedestal up there that says, this is why I fell. And then we look at our lives and say, we don't have 700 wives. We don't have seven, you know, 300 concubines, so we're not in the same danger. When I said, God, I feel like I'm missing something. And today, through some discussions that were going on on, a, on a, a pastor's Facebook site I was on. You don't know him, I do. Pastor Scott Phillips, one of our pastors, just kind of put a little blurb and God thumped me upside the head and he said, that's what you're missing. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me. I want to show you the, the, the secret, and I mean that in a bad way. I want to show you the secret. Are, are the reason of Solomon's fall. So I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. See, one of the, beauty, the, the, the beauties of the Bible is that you can cross-reference it. How many times have you heard me say when Jesus uh, says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit? All you got to do is go find other places where people were born of the water and the spirit. And you can cross-reference those together and you can see how it, how it fits. First and second 
uh, Samuel. That's the story of David. And then you get into 1 Kings. That's the, the end of David's life and the first of Solomon's life. And then you can go in the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles, you, you get part of David's life and you get Solomon's life. And so you begin to put these two together. And remember when David told his son, we read that charge at the very beginning, follow God with all your heart, follow his commandments, follow his precepts, follow his laws, and everything will be good. What, what the kings, first kings, uh, neglects to say, or not neglects, but just doesn't say, is seen in First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 20. If for whatever reason tonight your eyes have glazed over and you're trying to figure out what I'm going to get done preaching, wake up for just a moment because this, is, this means everything right here. You ready? All the other stuff, I was just getting to this place right now. So I need you to listen. I need you to pay close attention. Then David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. That may not jump out to you until you begin to look at Solomon's life in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. And the Bible, almost, I, I was trying to count it, I was looking for it, I think it's close to seven times that it says or alludes to. And Solomon finished the house of God. Seven years went by. And Solomon finished. I don't know why. I mean, I, 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 maybe I'm taking it a bit too far out of context. The Lord will not leave you or forsake you until the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. If the indictment of David's sin was that he stayed home, he was uninvolved, then Solomon's epitaph that goes upon his tombstone was this. He finished God's work and he finished God's plan and he didn't walk forward. After those seven years, he was done building the house and then for 13 years he built his own house and, and then he had enough time to, to, to build a couple palaces for uh, his, his, you know the, or a couple temples for his wives false gods and, and, and he, 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 he built enough you know high places and he, he did that. He finished God's work. but Solomon's own dreams and Solomon's own plans kept going forth. He built his house. He built dwellings for his wives. He built temples for his false gods. And it was because he finished God's house. The Bible says this. I know it uses the word love the Lord thy God with all, but I, I want to, and, and I don't think I'm doing any wrong hermeneutics to use this word. Instead of love the Lord God with all your heart, I think we could also say serve the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength one of the most dangerous places for you to ever get 
is when you quit working for the kingdom of God and God stops working in your life. There seems to be a correlation that as long as Solomon was working on the house of God, then he was sensitive to the word of God. And you can find it throughout Solomon's life that as long as he had his mind set on what God wanted, his ear was tuned to the voice of his Savior. Several times in Solomon's early history, an early part, Solomon, it would say, and God spoke to Solomon in a dream. God spoke to Solomon at the opening of the temple. God answered Solomon's prayer, and it was because he was sensitive because he was in God's plan. He was in God's work. But there came a time and a place when Solomon said, you know, I've done a lot. I'm going to hang up God's work for a while, and I'm going to focus on some of my own things. You know what? I need to build my house, and I need to make sure my wife is taken care of. By the way, there's an interesting thing. I don't know exactly where it is. It's in 1 Kings somewhere but there's an interesting little tidbit that says Solomon would not allow his wife from Egypt to live in his palace because that was David's palace and that was where David had brought the Ark of the Covenant uh, at some point and he said that place is holy and I can't let my heathen wife there I'm amazed at how many people still have some sort of godliness and some form of godliness, but they ain't living anything like it. But they still understand there's some things you just don't do in the presence of God. And and, and, and Solomon, as long as he had his heart and his mind focused on the things of God, then he was sensitive to the voice of God. But the danger of Solomon's life was that he got to the place where he said, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I feel like I've made it. You know, I've, 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 I've been to church for a long time, and I've, uh, I've worshipped. I've been exuberant in my worship, but I think I can take a break from my worship. I've, I, I deserve this break, and we start sitting down when we used to stand and lift our hands and our church attendance gets a little lax. You know, I've, I've never missed hardly a service. And, but I got this place where, you know, God's not going to care if I miss a service here. And that service ends up a second service and a third service. And, and finally, we kind of just let the things of God go by the way. And in the back of our mind, we wonder, why, why don't I hear his voice as clearly as I used to? And and, and I don't understand why I just don't feel anything when I come to church. And it has to be the music. It must be the preacher. He, he's not preaching like he used to. And, and it's got to be the, the youth pastor. He, there's something happening. we gotta, we got to do something different because I just don't feel anything like I used to. And in the back of your mind, God is trying to get your attention. He said it's because you quit working on the house of God and you started building your own house and you got desensitized to the things of God. You know, but, but sponsor, you and I, we've had some awesome conversations. Every once in a while, much to the chagrin of his, his daughter, I bring Brother Sponsor about a dozen donuts, and we sit and eat about six of them, drink some coffee, and then I leave the rest for him. And we'll sit and talk. How old are you, Brother Sponsor? About 80. How, how, is, is he telling me the, the full, eight, yeah, over, that's what I thought, about 89, I think. About 80, that, that sounds right. About. 
You know one thing I have so appreciated of Brother Sponsor? Is that almost 90 years old after going to, I don't know how many church services you've attended. And I don't know how many times you've worshipped. He has it in his heart that says, I can't, I can't sit down yet. I, I can't, I mean, if anybody ought to wake up in the morning and say, I just don't feel like going to church, I would think someone that's almost 90 years old that moves a little slower could do that. But I've watched our elders, and we've got several, and I don't mean this in any disrespect, but I've watched our gray-haired, silver-haired elders of this church and I've watched you come and what you're teaching me is you're teaching me this that there is not a place in my life there's not a time where I can retire from working and serving the Lord and sit back on my laurels and settle on my lees there's not a time that I can sit back I may not be able to run the aisles like I used to I may not be able to teach Sunday school class like I used to but I can't stop working I can't stop seeking because the moment I get out of the house of God is the moment I find myself building altars to Shamash and, and all of these other foreign deities and I, I can't do it. Solomon was sensitive to the voice as long as he was present and, and, and seeking but when he was done with God's work he lost his sensitivity and he lost, lost the voice of God and it breaks my heart because Solomon's end is so much greater and, and, and so much more uh, uh, horrid than his beginning. David had a fall. But David is the epitome of though I fall, I shall arise. But Solomon's arrogance and pride and I've reached the place. Remember this morning, those of you that were here this morning, and if you weren't here, not, not that I preached some great message, but I th you owe it to yourself to go listen to it because we, we read and, and went through chapter, Psalms chapter 30. And one of the things that was in there is it says that in my pride and my stubbornness, I stood up against God and kind of said, I don't need you. This is exactly where Solomon got to. I don't need church, I don't need God. I don't need the work of God. I've, I've kind of I've paid my dues and I can sit and do nothing. It's funny, I, my, my pastor, I'm so excited, we, we didn't mention it, but uh, October the 14th is a Wednesday and then that following Sunday we're going to celebrate our church's 55 years of, of, of history and we're going to have kind of an anniversary services that, that Wednesday, uh, I believe it's October 14th, that Wednesday, Brother uh, Scott Graham is going to be preaching and I'm so excited about that and then that Sunday morning uh, was going to be and we had it worked out I was going to have Brother brother uh, uh, Dugas was going to be able to, to speak come on Jonah you want to come preach with me Jonah says hey what's going on I'm actually surprised him I've been waiting for Zeke to do that for the last couple but, but I, was, I was looking forward to I began to talk to Brother Dugas and it looked like his health was going to allow him and he was going to be able and I was going to have my pastor come and preach and God has called him home and so I've asked the elder of my life, my dad, to preach that Sunday morning. But Sunday night, we're going to hear the voice of, of Brother, Brother T.D. Cardwell. He's been here, it's been a couple years ago. I think he's, he, he's about 87, I, I believe. And uh, we're going to hear, hear the voice of an elder. Now, Brother... Brother... Uh, uh, Cardwell, when he was 65, I think he was 65 years old or something like that, maybe a little older. 
he, he retired from pastoring. And at that point, Brother Cardwell's pastor was still alive, Brother T.W. T. Barnes. And Brother Barnes at that point had to be in his 80s. And he was still pastoring a church. He had some help, but he was still pastoring a church in Minden, Louisiana. <laughs> and I remember Brother Barnes, at 80 years old, looked at Brother Cardwell, who was in his late 60s, maybe even in his 70s, I can't remember. And, and in only the way that an old preacher can do, he said, now, T.D., God told me that when I stop pastoring, he's going to kill me. I'm, my life is done. I'm not going to live anymore. I, as long as I pastor, I'll be alive. Now, I know that, that may be some old school teaching versus others, and, and I'm glad that we can, we can allow pastors to to grow and they can bring someone in that can keep that church going because we don't need a church that's only connected to one pastor and one generation I want this church if God tarries to be going long after I'm gone but there was a little bit of truth in what Brother Barnes was saying Brother Barnes was saying that you can't ever retire from living for God because the moment that you think you've arrived and you can just start working on your own house and your own things and your own businesses and your own plans and your own dreams and your own circumstances will be the day that your epitaph reads the same as Solomon's. He did not wholly follow God. I'm here today to tell somebody that the Bible says seek ye first the kingdom of God. By the way, that's not seek it till you find it and then you're done. It's, it's not a who, who can find the kingdom of God first and you win some prize. It's an element of seeking for your entire life that it's a journey. And every day that I'm alive, I've been living for God for 31 years since I've had the Holy Ghost. 31 years. And every day I still am saying, God, what do I need today? It's not my will, but thine be done. I've got to decrease. You've got to increase. Show me your place. Show me your desire. Lead me and I'll follow. And what I've found, Sister Cindy, is every time that I walk in the presence of God, if I seek first the kingdom of God then and his righteousness, all these other things shall be added unto me. But the moment I focus on the other things and I don't seek first the kingdom, it's the moment I lose the other things. Oh, Brother Buford, I don't know about that. I may not be living for God as best I can, but man, my business is good, my family's good, my life is good. You're walking a dangerous line. You need to go hear my sermon from Wednesday night. There were those that said, well, I know we're going to Egypt and worshiping false gods, but our life is so much better since we quit following Yahweh. Yeah, but Egypt's about to crumble. And all of that safety you think you have in the other things just takes one moment and all of that comes crashing. One blip of a stock market. One, 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 one little thing and the wealth of this world that you have began to accumulate. You've laid up for yourselves treasures on earth. The Bible says it's those treasures that moth and rust and mildew and blight doth corrupt. 
if I lay up my treasures in heaven. I'm going to tell you, I'm thankful I can use some banks that are FDIC insured. And, and, and hopefully if we ever have another stock market crash, whatever's in the banks is going to be okay. But here's what I can tell you. I'm so thankful that I don't put my trust in the banks. I put my trust in God, which tells me that it doesn't matter how bad the financial circumstances get. If I can walk with God, He'll make sure I'm okay. I'm telling somebody today, don't be a Solomon who get to the place where you leave God behind and you start working on everything else but his, his things. Because the problem is, David said it. I'm going to read it again now that I've preached an entire message. And I want to invite you to stand. I read it and I don't think it quite sunk in. And I get it. It, it. it doesn't hit until you hear the rest of the story. So let me read it again. Be strong and courageous, Solomon. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. And it will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. I, I, I don't want to read extra into the Bible. But for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. That says that the Lord will be with you until you finish the house. Which tells me if you finish the house of God, He won't be with you anymore. I'm going to tell you right now, it was not the actual building of the house. There would be a time in which that temple was going to be done. But David got done with the presence. I mean, Solomon became done with the presence of God. And he started seeking the other things and not the things of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of His righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. I'm asking you right now, are you continuing the things of God or have you taken some sort of retirement and resignation from His presence? Don't be lulled by some, some good things that have happened in your life. Don't be lulled by, by some promotions. Don't be lulled by some things that, that you've, some treasures you've built up on earth. I want you to find yourself back in His presence and say, God, maybe I've neglected you. Maybe I've neglected the house of God. Maybe I've neglected the things of God. But pastor just preached and I've been convicted and I want to get back into your presence. And Lord, I want to seek you first, the kingdom of God. I wonder if you could close your eyes. I'm going to open these altars if you want to come. I want you to let the presence and the voice and the power of God's word speak to you in a mighty way as they begin to sing. I open altars. I open this house for you to move and have your way. And have, let God have his way in your life.